Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wilchko. Our guest on the show today is Dr. Carolyn Uhler, Professor of Machine Learning and Computer Science at MIT. She started off her career as a language teacher and speaks more than five languages. As we talked to her, it was clear that that early training really resonated with the rest of her career in two different ways. First, she's very loved by her students who see her as a great mentor. And she talked to us about how much she enjoys to teach at the university level. Second, and even more importantly, much of her life is still about being a translator. But this time, instead of between French and Latin, it's instead between biology and mathematics. As a machine learning expert, Carolyn Uhler transforms biological or cell-based data using mathematics and machine learning and statistics into a shared representational framework known as a latent space. And here, changes can be made to the cells in a virtual way as opposed to a physical way and decoded and understood. And using this latent space, you can predict, for example, what might happen to a lung cell given a particular drug from what you already know about the same drug given to a muscle cell. This is exactly what our guest has been doing to try to repurpose existing drugs to treat COVID-19. And I am honored to say that I will be joining Caroline as co-director of the new Eric and Wendy Schmidt Center, which will catalyze research at the interface of the life sciences and the data sciences. Well, today, I'm especially excited to welcome Carolyn Uhler to Theory and Practice as our guest. Uh, Carolyn, it's great to see you today. Hi, and thank you very much for having me. So first off, congratulations on your new role as co-director of the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Center. We'll definitely be talking about that later. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really exciting initiative. I'm I'm, I'm pumped to learn more. So first... You know, I'd like to understand what brought you to that moment, right? What brought you to this position of co-directing what is, you know, certainly going to be a world-leading center for studying, you know, both biology and computer science. Um, I've, I've read that, you know, there was really no particular academic expectations for you as a child. So I'm, I'm curious what's, what's led you to this moment. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear your story. Yes. Yeah, so, um, uh, growing up, I always wanted to become a teacher. So uh, yeah, I had an aunt who was a teacher and I taught actually whenever she was not able to go teach, I would teach for her and I really enjoyed it. And um, my main language was German growing up, but she speaks Italian. So I would have to teach in Italian. So that was always fun. Um, so yeah, so I grew up and that was my goal. And so I went to high school and after high school, I actually took a job as a teacher. So there were too few teachers at the time in Switzerland. And so there was an opportunity to teach in secondary school. Um, so I taught uh, German, Latin, and then also math and biology, etc. I actually enjoy teaching math and biology the most, and that's how I decided to go study math and biology. So I started studying at the University of Zurich and did um, first, you know, both at the same time. I got then a master's in, in mathematics and a bachelor in biology. That was all real fun. And during the last year at the University of Zurich, uh, there was a course 
which was um, called algebraic statistics for computational biology. You know, I really always enjoyed algebraic geometry and I also really enjoyed statistics. And, and so then there was this course which seemed to combine everything that I really loved together. And it was the course I took and then decided to do a PhD just because I really, really enjoyed the subject area. And then also applied to Berkeley and did my PhD at UC Berkeley. Then also on the side, still continued to do biology. So after that, uh, I directly applied for faculty positions. You know, I I actually applied for faculty positions outside of the U.S. um, and so got a faculty position at IST Austria. And then after that, moved to MIT and then met Anthony at some point, (laughs) 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 which was fun. Um, So maybe to go all the way to the center. um, So at at MIT, what uh, really excited me at that time was thinking about uh, genomics and mathematics and how that and statistics and machine learning and how that combines in particular studying gene regulation statistical aspects of gene regulation. And um, Aviv had introduced me at that time to the Broad Institute when I joined MIT, and uh, that was super exciting. So Aviv Regev, and I was proving these kinds of results that kind of show that, you know, it's very hard to learn anything causal from data, um, that you need like huge amounts of data, like such so much data that you basically like have no chance at, at learning anything about the causal relationships underlying the systems that you're studying. And so it was really exciting to hear from her how, you know, she was developing perturb-seq at the time where you could actually get very large scale and high throughput perturbational data sets. And so this really provides an opportunity to then learn something causal from these data sets or, or hopefully, um, and then, you know, let me down that route of, of trying to see how much you can learn when you have observational and perturbational data together in order to learn something about the underlying causal system. And that was super exciting. And I think from there, I was introduced also to Eric Lander. And so um, just learning more about, you know, also how his path went and, and was just always very inspiring. Then Eric asked me whether I would be excited to put together a vision for such a center. And I think that was something that I love to do to think about, you know, what is research? What are important questions going forward? And then that's how, when I was introduced to Anthony. Um, and from then on, it was fun to think together through, you know, what could be these, these big problems at this interface and how can we build a community at this interface between machine learning and biology and, the, and medicine more generally. Now, Carolyn, maybe we can start diving into your research a little bit. Um, and so, you know, when I look you up online, uh, it says that you specialize in graphical models causal inference, and their applications to biology. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. Tell me what a graphical model is. Okay, so um, we all know about networks. Um, so a graphical model is a probabilistic model on on a network. There is differences between standard network models that we think about and a graphical model. So um, if we're thinking about a social network, then you know you get to observe the edges, you get to see who is friends with whom, and now you want to do a probabilistic model over the edges. Now, a graphical model is different in that we don't get to observe edges. We actually get to observe data on the nodes. So as an example, um, and since, you know, um, here we'll also care about biological applications. So let's think about gene expression. So we have all of the nodes. These are these 20,000 genes. And so we get to observe how much expressed every one of these genes is. And what we would like to learn is the graphical structure. So we don't get to observe it, but there is obviously some relationships among these genes. And so we would like to learn um, this network among these genes. 
Now, these graphs can be undirected um, or they can be directed. So a directed network would correspond to re representing causal relationships that, you know, if one gene goes up or down, then that might make the other gene go up or down. Or you can also just um, represent it, and this is usually simpler, by undirected edges, which just corresponds to um, different kinds of interactions. And usually these are not correlations, but it's actually partial correlations. Um, so an edge is there or is not there if the two nodes, if, if you cannot learn anything. So if you just look at two nodes, there will be no edge between them. If Even if you have information on all other nodes, um, this one node A will not provide any further information about this node B than what you already know from all other nodes. So that's partial correlation. It's not just correlation. That makes these networks usually be a bit sparser. It's just a nicer way of representing it than just representing correlations. Excellent. Now, what does this have to do with causality? I mean, isn't causality something you can only get at by randomization? Or is there another way to infer causal? structures. Yeah, so this is really interesting. There has been a very long debate in statistics to actually figure these things out. Um, so, okay, so there are some causal relationships that you can learn just from observational data. But of course, you have to make certain assumptions. So first of all, if we make the assumption that every one of the nodes is observed, so you don't have any latent confounders, right, of course, it becomes really, really difficult. Wait, so what's a, what's a latent? What's a latent confounder? Oh, yeah, perfect. So these are, so let's even not say confounder, just a latent node. Um, so some unobserved node. So if um, we're thinking about the genes again, so what is it really great about single cell um, data is that you actually get, and single cell RNA-seq data, for example, is that you get to observe all of the different genes. But of course, at the beginning, when we were just observing two genes, um, say, and you want to know whether gene A has causes um, gene B to go up or down, well, then, you know, you could have have another third or fourth or fifth gene that you're not observing that could have an effect on both of them. And so it looks like both of these genes are going up and down together, but that's just because there is a third gene that has an effect on both of them and then makes them be co-varying together. So all kinds of effects can happen because you have some other variables that you're actually not measuring. Understood. Okay, so, so what's the holy grail if we think about cell biology? Is it to somehow discover all of the network of relationships among the genes and what gene turns another gene on or what is something like that? Yeah, so this is actually a great question that I ask myself quite often in terms of what does it even mean to understand gene regulation? So I'll give a, a definition that is sufficient right now, at least for me, but I understand that this is not a complete understanding of gene regulation. So to me right now, I think I'm quite happy with if I'm able to predict what happens when you say um, intervene on a particular gene. So if I can just predict that, hey, if you're going in and you're going to intervene on this gene, say you're knocking out this particular gene or uh, you're overexpressing a particular transcription factor, and I can then tell you what happens to all these other genes, um, then that to me is already quite close to understanding the gene regulatory network. Now, this has nothing to do with, you know, writing out a full network and knowing all of the feedback loops and everything in these pathways. Of course, that could be the ultimate goal. You know, I think it's always important to start off with a particular question. And maybe you can already answer these kinds of questions by just understanding what will happen if you knock out this particular gene or overexpress this particular transcription factor. That's interesting. A, a neuroscientist that I, I'm a, a big fan of, his name is Jim DiCarlo. He's at MIT as well. Uh, he, he has a definition for understanding, which is if you can build it, predict it, or fix it, 
then you understand it. And so it seems like you're kind of referencing the predicted part. Yeah, I love that part. I mean, I, I completely agree that there will be some, you know, additional things that will also mean understanding, right? So this is just an initial part that that has helped me, you know, answer many questions um, that this kind of understanding is actually sufficient. And that's also where we're going now. So we have been taking the next step of actually going from just being able to predict to going able to fix. We have not yet gone in our research to the level of being able to build but fixing, yes, where you're thinking about a disease state and you would like to know what are the interventions that you might need in order to move the system towards a particular healthy state or um, something that I'm excited about right now is to figure out how can you reprogram cells. So what are interventions, the optimal interventions required in order to move cells from one state to another state, for example, to de-differentiate cells going backwards? Excellent. I wonder, you know, at this point in your life, what's your primary professional identity? Do you think of yourself as first a biologist or first uh, a mathematician or statistician? And then, you know, as you're describing, you're so clear, and I know that your students just love you. Part of me actually wonders if your identity is not still a teacher at heart. Yeah, so, so the research that we do is always motivated by particular biological questions, but then, you know, it might take a long cycle until we get back to the biological question itself. So I do feel as I'm really in between, but, but certainly my thinking is, is like very much motivated by, by my education from a mathematical and from a statistical perspective. Like how I approach a problem in biology is certainly very much given by, by this kind of background. Um, but at the same time, I always knew I was not a mathematician. And so this is kind of, it's, it was actually very clear to me during my PhD that I am not a mathematician because I would go to these talks and and these were pure math talks. And that was just not exciting to me because like just the beauty of math alone to me is not sufficient. There needs to be a problem behind it that I actually care about. And just the beauty was just never enough. And so it was clear to me that I was more on the statistical side because they actually cared about, you know, you wanted to get something useful out in the end for doing, you know, for doing inference or for just understanding something more about the underlying system. Um, but at the same time, I do like, you know, nice and beautiful mathematics. So I think an applied problem is the nicest one when it actually leads to beautiful mathematics. But just the beauty of math itself is simply not sufficient. So I can definitely rule out that part. Um, and then in terms of uh, teaching, yes, I mean, that's certainly something that I still really enjoy very much. And I think it's maybe more than teaching. It's more mentoring students and, and working with them together. I think that's the part that I really enjoy the most. Excellent. You know, I've said these two before, Caroline, but uh, I can't help but think I wish I could go back in time and do a second PhD with you. <laughs> Thank you. I think you would be an amazing student, so I think it would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So one, one thing that, that I'm kind of hearing is you seem motivated to solve real biological problems by really any means necessary, and math and statistics are, you know, really incredible tools in the toolbox to do that. One thing that that seems particularly amenable to these days is our data sets are getting larger and they're getting larger really quickly and they're also getting more diverse. So not only are, if you imagine a data set as a tree, not only are they very tall, but there's big forests of them. Um, and, you know, we, we've talked about this with some uh, guests on the podcast, uh, particularly the amount of interventional genomic data is expanding really rapidly alongside an expansion of observational data, like cell imaging data. So we talked to Ann Carpenter about this in the, the first podcast in this series. 
my question is, how do we begin to combine these types of data? I mean, it seems like each data set might be on an island, but you know, maybe touching related problems. And uh, it seems like you've you've thought about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and that's exactly one of the really exciting things about biology is that you get to because all of these really amazing technologies have been developed, you actually get to observe a system from many different points of views. Um, and so, as you just mentioned, this could be imaging, but it could be sequencing, it could be metabolomics, it could be proteomics, et cetera. Um, so for now, we've mainly looked at, you know, imaging data sets and sequencing data sets. There is an analogy like that people in vision and, and text and uh, et cetera and audio have you know, they have very similar questions, right? Where they, where you have like this multi-modal view of the same problem. And if you have enough instances of this, right? If you have enough images and you have enough, say, even audio. So, so say we have a whole bag of situations and we just sample out some of them and we, we have images for them. And then we sample some out of them and we have audio for them. Then since it's always about the same objects, well, the distribution over these objects is the same. And so that is what can be used in order to integrate the different modalities together, even though you're never measuring together. But that's so the same what is happening in biology. It's still very difficult, although you can get all of these very high resolution and high throughput data sets in one modality. It's actually still quite difficult to measure very different modalities in the same cell. Um, so in particular, if you're thinking about imaging and sequencing, it's still quite difficult to actually get this in the same cell. And so you often have this problem of how do you integrate very different data modalities without ever being able to measure them paired. You know, the underlying distribution should be the same if these samples were taken out at random and you just took out some for imaging and some for sequencing. So this is one strategy of how to integrate very different data modalities together. It seems like the uh, the five blind people and the elephant problem. You've got all these you know gigabytes and gigabytes of measurements about something, and you'd like to infer that what you're observing is an elephant or it's some object, you know, biological object, some some truth that you're seeking. You know, just to kind of riff on that for a second, I, I do find this to be kind of an amazing idea. I mean, let me make sure I'm understanding it, Caroline. So what you're saying is, let's say I have lots and lots of recordings of people talking, and then I have lots and lots of movies where I get to see people, but I don't know what they're saying. Somehow I can take these two things together and be able to figure out the videos from the from the talk tracks or the talk tracks from the videos, even though I never get to see any of this, both the speech and the video on any one person. Is that correct? That's correct. And that actually also works. And similar if you're thinking about um, um, images and captions. Yeah. Um, if you have many captions and you have many images um, and, you know, they were all sampled from some distribution or some set of data points, it's a huge one. You're not going to observe every one of them. But just because the underlying distribution, right, of all of the different situations you could be at is the same, you can match the distributions. I mean, we, we might just discuss a little bit like the concrete way in which you're using this notion of transportability or like relationships between Data sets. So, you know, I think you've been you've been working on how to translate explicitly what you can learn from one data set um, about a cell type uh, to another data set about a, a different cell type. So, the concept here is is causal transportability, and I'm 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 curious what that is and how that works. Yeah, so I think there are many, many exciting um, transport questions in biology. And so I think one of them we just talked about is transporting between different data modalities. Um, So here, it's not necessarily anything causal. 
It's just that you have observational data in one modality and in the other, and you want to transport between them. So it could also lead to something causal, maybe because you, you are getting to observe the two data modalities. So actually having, you know, these different kinds of views might help you to get to something causal that is really, you know, defining the underlying system. So even though it is observational, it might get you closer to causality. So then the other one that we also often look at is also not yet causal is actually transporting over time. Um, so in biology, again, because, you know, often uh, when you're taking a measurement, you are going to have to, in this case, kill or, or the cells or fix the cells in an image, etc. So that means that you can often not observe the standard time series data where you get to observe a system over time. But you get to observe um, snapshots over time over a population. So you have a population of cells, you take out some for imaging at time point zero, and then you take out some others for imaging at time point one, at time point two, etc. And so now you would like to answer questions like, how would this cell have looked like at a later time point were I still able to image it? But of course, now it is dead. So it's another transport problem over time. At the single cell level, can I actually predict what happens? And then come the causal questions that you were referring to. One is known as causal transportability, where you have a particular intervention. So now it's the causal setting. So I want to be able to predict the effect of an intervention. So I would like to answer the question, like, so I have, say, a drug and I have it applied to a particular cell type. Now I would like to predict what happens when I apply this drug to a different cell type. So here I'm transporting, and this is known as transporting across different environments. My environments now are cell types. What do I want to transport? I want to transport the effect of a particular perturbation. In this case, the effect of a drug across different environments. Now, Caroline, recently you've applied several of these ideas to drugs for COVID. Is that right? Yes. So this uh, causal transportability came up um, for, for screening for drugs for COVID. So if we're thinking about drug developments in the in the context of COVID-19, then probably you want to find drugs that you can repurpose against COVID-19 just because the whole process of developing a new drug um, really takes very long and most drugs fail. So if you look at drugs that have already gone through FDA approval, then you can skip over some of the steps, for example, the dosing trials um, and the safety trials. And you can directly move to trials um, where it's about you know, how, how efficient or, or how effective are these drugs actually in the new context of COVID-19. And so what we wanted to answer is um, among all these FDA approved drugs, which ones could be helpful in the setting of COVID-19. Now, drugs can have very different effects on different cell types. Um, so they can have, you know, while a drug um, has a certain effect on a skin cell, say, it might actually have a very different effect on, say, a muscle cell. Now, if we're thinking about the COVID-19 setting, then what we care about is, you know, long epithelial cells that are infected by SARS-CoV-2. So we would like to predict what do all these drugs do when you apply them to this, these particular cell lines or cell types in this case. So that's this causal transportability problem where you want to predict what do these FDA-approved drugs do when you apply them to these SARS-CoV-2 infected long epithelial cells. And of course, you don't want to have to redo this whole experiment of applying all these thousands of drugs to this particular cell type that you care about, you would like to be able to filter them out computationally so that you get a small list of drugs that could then be tested experimentally after that. And so that's exactly what we did in this study. And, and now would be what is exciting is to actually see how they actually work in these experiments. I think that's a, that's a pretty big and, I mean, timely vision for using all the techniques that you've been developing to solve one of the most pressing health problems with us today. I'm curious to now hear 
your vision for the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Center and how the work that you've been doing previously dovetails into this or what the grand vision is, the grand plan, and what new areas of biology and intersections with computer science you think this center can open up or emphasize? Um, so with Anthony, we thought through these questions um, quite a bit over the last months, and I think it has been really exciting to think through, you know, what are these most important and pressing biological questions that could motivate a lot of new developments in machine learning and related areas and the other way around as well. And I think what we're really excited about is there is a lot of energy already in this space and um, recognition of that machine learning can really help solve important problems in biology. What we're also really excited about is actually the other way around, recognizing that biology and problems in biology could really lead to very different questions in machine learning and related areas. What are these very different questions in machine learning that could be spurred by biology? There are, of course, things that are already ongoing, but maybe, you know, the emphasis will be put differently. And we've already touched upon many of these questions. I mean, you know, in biology, as you mentioned, right, we have these like very di many different data modalities at many different scales. So this tree is not just deep, but it's actually very wide. Um, so we have really a big representation learning question. We want to be able to find meaningful representations that will teach us something new about biology. That's already a super active area, but uh, but you know will be even will become even more important and active through particular questions in biology. And I think something that maybe has not been studied so much and will be really important using biological data is that we haven't talked so much about is different scales in images, for example. Right, you go all the way to super resolution imaging, and then you know you go to cells and tissues, and even in organisms, etc. You have many different images. So how can you or imaging modalities? How can you actually integrate across scales so that you can use the higher hierarchies that are, that are there in these organizations to get much more meaningful representations. And in general, in biology, it's not about, you know, prediction accuracy, right? It's not about just, you know, I want to improve the click rate of ads and how can you do this? You really need to understand the underlying causal mechanisms and, and that's really the end goal. I mean, we already talked about drugs, right? So often what you would, what you would do in these studies is you find a protein that is kind of central to all of these other genes that are differentially expressed in a disease and then you try to target this. But, you know, if this protein or, or this gene doesn't regulate all the other genes, well, it's going to be a very poor target. So the underlying causal mechanisms are super important. And so if we want to find representations in biology, they actually should be something, they should tell us something about the underlying mechanisms. And so that already brings me to causality and something that we've already talked about. I think that's just a really important area um, in biology. And then another area that I think will be heavily impacted is, is experimental design and bandits, et cetera, and reinforcement learning. Because you can perform all these interventions in biology, the space of interventions is also huge. I mean, you can knock out any gene or also combinations of genes. So the question is really which, which ones of these drugs or which, or which combinations of drugs or which um, combinations of knockouts or transcription factors, et cetera, should you apply in order to bring a system towards a particular state that you actually care about? Um, so I think these are three areas that we have, you know, identified that I think will be really important and impacted by biological questions, but then also will be really, you know, be able to really impact biology again. And what is really a challenge and an opportunity here is to also use the computational methods that cut across to actually cut across these different communities of researchers, also on the biological side, because I think if you want to, say, understand a disease, right, it will be cutting across. So it's often a disease starts 
starts at the single cell level. So if you want to identify it very early on, you need to understand what are the pathways, et cetera, involved at the single cell level. Also drugs usually work at the single cell level. Um, but then you, in order to identify the disease, you know, it's probably often easier and you need to understand what happens at the tissue level. How do motifs change? And then of course at the organism level, and you also want to be able to connect it back all the way to the sequence space of the DNA space and maybe, you know, different kinds of uh, mutations, et cetera, and, and traits that you could already detect at, um, at the genetic level already. So there you see like how important it is to go across scales um, if, you want to, if you want to understand different kinds of diseases. And also, of course, the computational um, tools will be going across scales as well. So I think that's a real challenge and also an opportunity for the center to kind of break down these barriers um, between these different communities. You know, Carolyn, the vision you outlined really calls for bringing together different types of researchers from across biology and the data sciences. And I think one of the things we've all seen is that these are very different communities, different intuitions, different ways of approaching problems. And yet there's so much need for work at their intersection. Any thoughts on strategies for bringing these two fields together, things that you've seen work especially well? Yeah, so here I think the, the Broad Institute is just a really uniquely fertile ground for this because it has a tradition of bringing these communities already together and building a common language. I think the hard part is always building a common language. And so here, a lot of this has already been done for us, which I think is, you know, really, really lucky. And then you can grow from that. And I think that's the amazing thing about the Broad, that there are these three communities that have already worked, that have already learned to work with each other. Um, and the three communities here being, you know, biologists on one side that can ask, um, that know about and can ask the right and important biological questions. And then biotechnologists who actually develop methods for being able to interrogate these questions and being able to measure the system and and provide data sets that can then be analyzed by computational scientists. And also having computational biologists in there who can speak all of these different languages is what is really unique in, at the Broad Institute and will help us, I think, create then this larger network um, starting from there. So it seems like it uh, turns out that your past life as a language teacher is actually coming in handy then. <laughs> Yes, and I still love Latin. Um, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so actually, yeah, so this has um, semper ubi sub ubi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, <laughs> and also just always thinking about it as translating and and connecting. I think that's um, yep. Well, let me ask one last question to close this out. It, you know, project forward five years into the future. What are the future directions that intellectually you're the most excited about? Over the last five years or so, it has for me been causality. And I think, you know, even going forward, I think this is just, it's one of the most important questions. I mean, the question of is, to me, one of the most important questions. And if I can develop methods for, for really being able to say exactly where are the boundaries of what can we learn and what can we not learn, and also identify new kinds of experiments that will allow us to better get at, you know, these underlying causal relationships. There should be more and more of this of like where the computational methods not only actually are used to analyze different data sets, but even but even come up with new experiments in the sense that they might tell us what we need or would need to be able to measure in order to be able to answer a particular question. Maybe we could even say, what is it that we would 
need to be able to measure. And this is exactly what we need to be able to develop to actually measure whether now the DNA is closed and where is it closed and where is it open, because only this will allow me to actually really be able to say how gene regulation works. Um, that I think would be really, really exciting. And that's what I hope uh, where we'll get to um, in the next five years. Wonderful. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Caroline. Well, thank you guys very much. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Huge thanks to Dr. Carolyn Uhler. Regular listeners will know that this is the point when we take time at the end of each episode, in the spirit of regular in-person meetups in Boston many years ago, to discuss a big problem, the nail, and possible solutions, the hammers, inspired by what we just heard. So Anthony, do you have a hammer or a nail this week? Uh, well, you know, actually, usually I, I'm the one with the nail, uh, Alex, and you're the one with the hammer. But I was really inspired by your uh, Pasteur's Quadrant discussion last week, and you actually took on the nail. So I thought I would be a little bit bold uh, and get out over my skis and, and try to do a hammer. Uh, and the hammer I have is actually one that I've learned about from Caroline Uhler. And it goes under a few names, uh, interpolation, Overparameterization, double descent. But they're all referring to the same problem. And it's really at the heart of the breakthroughs in machine learning over the last decade or so. Uh, and actually, this is one that's especially pleasant for me to observe from the sidelines because it kind of coincides with my own career and coming into and out of machine learning. So going back in time, I remember I started my MD PhD program in 2001. And a lot of the foundations of statistical learning had just been formulated. Peter Bartlett or Vladimir Vopnik um, were especially important. And they came up with the idea of what's the right level of model complexity. And, and let me unpack this for a second. Imagine that you're trying to predict one outcome from another. So you're trying to predict you know, height from weight. And so you, you build a, a regression, you do a polynomial, and there's this question of how many terms in the polynomial should you include? And, you know, and your measure of success is performance on an independent data set. So I start adding more and more terms to my polynomial. And at some point, um, and, and my performance on the new data set gets better and better as a predictor. And then at some point, I start adding too many terms. And I've so-called overfit. So now... Uh, I actually end up doing much worse on, on the test data set than my, uh, than my training data set. And so there was this kind of elaborate theory that uh, attempted to measure the complexity of your models going under the names of things like VC dimension or Rademacher complexity. And there was this finding the sweet spot between having just enough parameters and not too many. And so it was kind of interesting because this theory had just was born in the 90s and led to a lot of new ML methods like support vector machines. And at the time, it was kind of this sea change where neural networks were not cool, and it was only the weirdos in the corner that were still playing with neural nets. All the cool, hardcore people were using these much more kind of mathematically well-formulated models. And so then I finished my PhD and you know, went back to med school and did my residency and fellowship and was reading a lot more New England Journal of Medicine and a lot less machine learning. And that's actually when the deep learning revolution hit. 
And so then suddenly uh, I finished up my residency and now I'm working at the Broad again. And the world has totally changed under my feet uh, and in two ways. The people doing support vector machines and VC dimension and all of these kind of well mathematically formulated things are now the weirdos in the corner that nobody wants to talk to. And instead, the neural networks are the cool people that are on the cover of the New York Times and everybody's talking about deep learning, deep this, deep that. And so it was actually a real mystery to me what had happened during this period. What was the seed change? There was a a big change in people's perspectives around neural networks. It went from this kind of backwater um, you know, curiosity to something that seemed to be a real tool that could be used in industrial applications. I think this is kind of an incredible thing, was that original group of neural network people continued to work. Computers got bigger. We got bigger data sets. And they started doing something that theory says is just totally wrongheaded, which is they started building models that have way more parameters than observations. So, you know, if you go to places like Google Brain, where you work, or Facebook AI, or other places, you'll see that they might build a model with a billion parameters trained on 50,000 images. And to the previous generation of theoreticians, this is just ludicrous. It should be so ridiculously overfit. And yet empirically, it was working. And not only was it working, it was working much better than any of the models we had ever considered before. So now there was a new theoretical problem for the new generation of theoreticians to solve. And Caroline Uller, who we just talked to, is part of this story. And it begins uh, with, I mean, probably begins for a lot of places, but the person who really brought it to the forefront is a professor at UCSD uh, named Misha Belkin. And he wrote this interesting paper in PNAS called Double Descent. And what he says is, all right, start adding more and more complexity to your model. And at first, your performance increases And then it decreases and it gets worse and worse and worse. And in fact, it's at its absolute worst when your number of parameters is about the same as your number of observations. And that's the point where it's almost certainly going to be terrible. And people had always stopped there. But he said, well, let's see if we just keep on going. And now we keep on adding more and more parameters beyond the number of observations we have. So again, when you're a child, you learned that you can't solve, if you have a system of equations and you have more unknowns than equations, it can't be solved. So again, this is just a mystery that even anyone would even want to try this in the first place. But what he observed numerically was that if you just keep on adding parameters more and more and more, actually your performance starts to improve again. So it kind of looks like a U uh, and then you start decaying again. So he called this double descent. Um, And of course, when somebody writes a paper like this, two things happen. Lots of other people say, oh, this was already known. It was already in the literature. This is obvious. And the other half of the people say, it's totally wrong. Uh, This doesn't make any sense. But sure enough, then more and more people started to look at this and see, ah, actually come up with nice examples where it actually works out this way. Some toy problems where the theory, you could start to begin to develop a new theory and show that this happens. And again, Alex, you know much better than me. My sense of the current state is that we now have some toy models like linear regression where we're beginning to have a theoretical understanding of why overparameterization or interpolation works. 
and there's kind of a, a thesis emerging that you should add a lot of parameters uh, and then choose the the minimum norm solution. We, that's technical. We can leave that aside. And it seems to make sense to these toy problems. But in the general setting of the deep learning kind of world, we're far from understanding what's exactly going on. Is this fair? So when you have these over-parameterized models, they definitely are predicting better, and we don't know why. But one of the things that's concerning to me is, you know, what's nice about simpler models is you know what's going on inside of them, right? There's only so many parameters, and each of those parameters might actually correspond to the importance of some input variable, like the weight of a person or the height of a person. And when you've got billions of parameters, you don't really know what any of them actually mean. So I, one of the issues maybe is, you know, don't we lose interpretability when we over-parameterize? Yeah. I mean, so that's a great point, Alex. And, and again, you'll know a lot more about this than me. But there is this question of when you start having a billion parameters, how do you actually interpret what you get out? And yeah, I, again, I, I think this is quite mystery. I mean, I think there are a lot of mysteries. Let me give another mystery that, again, this is kind of completely puzzling to me. You know, you imagine I'm sitting in this billion dimensional space, let's say, and I have 50,000 observations. So what that means is that I have kind of a surface that's of dimension 1 billion minus 50,000 that all fit the training data equally well. And I'll tell you another aspect of this problem that I find so surprising. And actually, I'll be honest, I, I think this is one of the most compelling questions that I've, I've ever come across. Um, okay, so, so again, going back to this example of I have a billion parameters in my neural net and I have 50,000 examples that I've trained on. And what happens when I train is I start at an initial point with the parameters and then I walk my way little by little to get a better fit on the training set. So concretely, if I have a billion parameters and I have 50,000 observations, there's a surface that's roughly of dimension 1 billion minus 50,000 that all and all the points on that surface will fit the training data essentially perfectly or equally well. And so, you know, most of the points on that surface, when you try and generalize to an independent data set, will do terrible. And then a very small number of them will do will generalize very well. And so why is it that when I initialize at zero or some other point and then do an optimization procedure called gradient descent and walk my way until I hit a point on the surface, why is it that I'm so reliably landing on a point on the surface that generalizes well? It, it just doesn't seem to have any theoretical basis, or at least not one that I can intuit. And yet, this is the basis of why deep learning works so, works so well in practice. I have to say, we're starting to see the beginnings of a theory, especially in some of the kind of toy models like kernel regression. And as someone who's kind of once again re-entered the field after being away from it, I think it's just going to be so exciting to have a front row seat, which over the next five or so years, as this theory comes together and we start to understand why our deep learning models are working so well. And that to me is what's really exciting here. I think you're you're describing a moment in time where these models, this technology is working better than we understand why it's working so well. And in a sense, we're we're privileged to be able to see this play out. You know, I think this is one of the first times in my mathematical life when I've ever gotten to see a big result unfold 
in front of me rather than kind of watching it or reading about it 10 years later in the textbooks. So anyways, it's really a wonderful time for people working in machine learning at this age where we have a whole new set of ideas that are just working incredibly well and we don't yet have a theoretical underpinnings of, of why. Uh, and again, you know, it was quite exciting to talk to Carolyn today, and this is an area that she's very involved with in her own research. Uh, and again, kind of reminds me how lucky all of us are to get to talk to her and people like her on this show. Next episode, we'll be speaking to Krishna Yeshwant from GV. Then later in the series, we'll be speaking to Aviv Regev from Genentech and Broad Institute founder David Altshuler. If you've got any questions for us or our guests, email theoryandpractice at gv.com or tweet at gvteam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily Omani, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wilchko. And this is Theory and Practice.